0: You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. How to empower of and strengthen women is the role because that maternal, child and fear health fear and nutrition... Because is what
1: drives this disease and keeps
0: it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, You'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. In the last decade, Russia has increased its global engagement in non-communicable diseases and tuberculosis. While at the same time pursuing policies at home that are giving rise to HIV-AIDS and drug-resistant tuberculosis epidemics that are a risk for both its own population as well as the population of its neighbors, these developments have unfolded against a backdrop of highly malevolent Russian behavior across many fronts that has resulted in the imposition of extensive sanctions. What to make of this pattern and what should the U.S. strategy of engagement be in the area of global health? Today we explore these issues in a special joint episode of Take as Directed as well as Russian Roulette, the CSIS Russia and Eurasia Program's podcast. I'm joined by my colleague Jeff Mankoff, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with our CSIS Russia Program and Judy Twigg, Professor of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University and a Senior Associate with the CSIS Russia Program. We discussed Judy and my recent analysis, Putin and Global Health, Friend or Foe, which outlines an opportunity to expand U.S. engagement to promote health security and counter Russian influence in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Thank you both for being here today with us. So let's get started. Judy, I'm going to ask you first, give us a really quick synopsis. What's in this paper? What's our argument? Thank you for cooperating and putting this paper out. I think it's a great paper. I thoroughly enjoyed working with you and putting it together, as usual, and we couldn't have done it without you. So go ahead and give us the big picture.
2: Thanks, Steve. Always a pleasure to work together with you and Jeff and everyone here at CSIS. This paper was predicated on an observation that over the last decade or so, Putin and Russia have become fairly aggressive in expanding their health diplomacy, primarily in the areas of non-communicable diseases, NCDs, and tuberculosis, TB. And they've launched those initiatives, which have included hosting a bunch of high-level meetings, putting their personnel in high-level positions at the World Health Organization and other entities, hosting the World Health Organization's European NCD office in Moscow, and putting in a fair amount of money to support the activities of that office. All of these initiatives follow the tremendous progress that Russia has made at home, undeniable progress in combating its own dire issues with non-communicable disease and tuberculosis and emerging really from crises in both of those areas in the 90s and doing some turnarounds over the last decade. So good for them. It's important to acknowledge those successes and it's important to be appreciative of the resources that they have committed, the personnel that they have assigned to roles in the global arena in these areas. The paradox, the quandary comes in looking at some of Russia's other behaviors in the global health sphere that are considerably less productive, I would go so far as to say deliberately disruptive with pernicious, malignant effect, one of those is in multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, where Russia continues to have a serious problem with addressing the socioeconomic determinants of tuberculosis and getting a handle on the drug-resistant form of the disease and the potential spread of that drug-resistant disease beyond Russia's borders. And then even more importantly, and connected to that, is Russia's position at home and globally on dealing with its HIV epidemic. Russia is overtly hostile to virtually all forms of harm reduction. And in particular, it does not legalize opioid maintenance therapy, substitution therapy, methadone. And that has contributed to an inability for them to turn around their epidemic at home. And they're putting a lot of pressures on their neighbors in the region, Mm -hmm. in, in Central Asia and Eastern Europe, to reverse the progress that those countries have made in harm reduction policies other than Uzbekistan, pretty much everywhere else in the region has moved forward pretty far beyond Russia in enlightened best practice policies with harm reduction, substitution therapy, needle exchange. And there's a danger that the political pressure that Russia is putting on those countries to backslide in Mm -hmm. these areas puts this part of the world at risk in moving forward with important goals on addressing the HIV epidemic. So the bigger sets of questions that these patterns that we see from Russia, this behavior that we see from Russia, the questions that this raises have to do with how the United States responds. As Russia pushes into this global health space in some ways that are productive, in some ways that are pretty clearly counterproductive, how can the United States exert its own responsive health diplomacy in making sure that we're providing a set of tools and incentives for our friends and our potential better friends in the region to do the right things, both in terms of the ultimate goal, which is achieving better health outcomes, but also in making sure that we're positioning health in the right way in terms of the geopolitical activity that's taking place in the region.
0: I'm going to turn to Jeff in a moment. I just want to add a couple of other thoughts here that on the external domain, that is Russia's behavior outside of its borders, there's been a trend line In the last 10 or 15 years around elevating health security as a matter of Mm -hmm. global cooperation and global public good, something that requires much more careful deliberations and coordinated action. And yet we are seeing a deterioration of the ability to cooperate on these matters. We are seeing it happen at a time when vaccine hesitancy has skyrocketed globally in many different contexts. All of those contexts quite different, yeah. but Russia figures in the discussion around disinformation, mm-hmm, right. social media campaigns. So that's an important thing to note. The other is their epidemic on HIV is big, yeah. and we are here at CSIS in a separate line of work are looking at the risk of a resurgent epidemic globally in HIV, and one of the things we're doing is looking at, well, where are the hotspots that we haven't paid sufficient attention to? And one that pops readily to the fore is Russia, over a million, mm-hmm. spending a lot of money, having good policies, but the actual enactment and enforcement and addressing stigma and exclusion of those in marginalized populations, not at proceeding. And so it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So on HIV and its role globally, the vaccine hesitancy and the fact that this march forward on global health security and cooperation, Russia is not really at the table much and that point as it becomes more and more isolated internationally in this period of all sorts of other bad behavior that has contributed to that inwardness and that isolation. So, Jeff, that's a long-winded introduction. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) Thank you for being with us. As a Russia expert, as someone who looks at the broader geopolitical environment, How does any of this strike you? I mean, here we are making a public health argument Mm -hmm. that we need to look at it in a new and different way. Tell us what your reactions are.
1: Yeah, well, just listening to the introductory conversation here, I guess I had thoughts on really three areas. One has to do with Russia's larger geopolitical relationship with the United States and the West, which I think, as we all know, has become more strained over the last several years. And in part, what that means is that I think there's less openness to cooperation in general. There's active attempts to break avenues of cooperation that had been developed in the past. And I don't know exactly how this plays out in the public health space, but certainly in a lot of other non-specifically security related areas, a lot of the work of building up cooperation that had been undertaken over the last 20, 25 years has really gone into reverse and it's made it harder to get buy-in from Russia on dealing with problems that we have in common. Give us a
0: couple of examples, non-health examples.
1: Obviously, on economics and trade is a huge example. I think the push in the United States and in Western Europe for most of the 90s and the 2000s was to expand economic linkages, to get Russia into the World Trade Organization, to have more business-to-business contacts so that you have stakeholders on multiple levels who can insulate the relationship from various kinds of political shocks. And it worked up to a point, but then once you had a big political shock, The response on both sides was to go after some of those areas of cooperation that had been built up. Another one is the bilateral presidential commission, which was this series of working groups that was put into place by President Obama and President Medvedev as part of the U.S.-Russia reset in 2009. And it covered areas including health and trade. We were
0: involved in some of those follow on activities.
1: Yeah. And now as a result of the war in Ukraine and the sanctions, a lot of that has gone away. So we just don't have as many sort of avenues for interaction and for shaping behavior as we had in the past. The second observation, I guess, that I had has to do with sort of how Russia's positioning itself domestically and the role of certain actors in Russian society and the impact that they have on framing the way that Russia approaches some of these problems. You're probably aware that as part of this escalating confrontation between Russia and the West, there's been a real push to define Russia as a bastion of quote-unquote traditional values. And that has involved elevating the role of the Russian Orthodox Church, promoting what Putin talks about as traditional family values, which has been part of the Russian brand, both domestically and in terms of Russia's foreign engagements, which I think is why there's some affinity for Russia on the part of various right-wing groups in the United States and Europe. But I think on the issue of public health, this has implications because of what it means for how Russia deals with what you call stigmatized populations people engaged in sex work, for example, LGBT people, people who are at high risk of contracting HIV, injectable drug users. So instead of focusing on harm reduction, which is, of course, what we've been um, emphasizing for a long time, I think as part of this kind of shift towards a more quote-unquote traditional values-oriented approach and elevating the role of groups like the Orthodox Church, one of the consequences has been, to go back to this more punitive approach that I think we pursued towards those populations 20 or 30 years ago. And of course, this isn't a problem that's only confined to Russia's borders, because as we know, these epidemics travel, they travel with people and with goods. The other piece of that on the drug side, I guess, I would also add that there's a bigger issue sort of surrounding Russia's approach to fighting the drug epidemic, narcotics. And since we talked about Central Asia, I think this is important because Russia's approach to dealing with Central Asia is is based on a lot of different factors. But one of the big ones is stemming the influx of narcotics from Afghanistan through Central Asia into Russia. And that's
0: all intertwined with its own migration. Yes,
1: right. And there's a, a huge number of Central Asian migrants who go to Russia for work. They're stigmatized in various ways as well. So, you know, as Russia has become more isolated from the West, more kind of approaching its own public health problems through the lens of this traditional values agenda. I think as it seeks to deal with this problem of drug trafficking and drug addiction, it's pursuing policies not only domestically, but as you were saying, you know, vis-a-vis its neighbors that from a public health perspective are not especially helpful. The final point I would make, you raised the vaccine issue and the rise of sort of anti-vaccine sentiment in the West. This is an area where I think there's a difference between what Russia does domestically and then how Russia sort of engages abroad. Because actually within Russia, rates of vaccination for things like measles and polio are high. But as it has on a number of other issues, Russia's identified this skepticism towards vaccines as an area where there are political divisions that it can play on in the West and so has actually promoted some of this skepticism towards vaccination on social media not because Russia's decided that it wants to create measles epidemics, but because... It's it's, an opportunity. Yeah, it's decided that it wants to sow divisions and that this is a cleavage that it can play on. And so in that sense, again, it's this geopolitical confrontation between Russia and the West that sets the stage for some of this problematic behavior on the public health stage.
0: Well, you know, on that point, it's interesting that in the United States, one of the areas where we've seen epidemics resurge in measles or in other vaccines Related to that is the former Ukrainian population in the West, right, Mm -hmm. in Washington state, I believe. You know, this is a ethnic community that has its bounds that much like, you know, the orthodox Jewish population that is in Rockland County Mm -hmm. and in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or the Somali population in Minnesota. But in this case, what they discovered in going out and talking to that community was that they had been ordered in the Soviet era when they were living in the Soviet Union, they were under order to take these vaccines. and once they were in a different context and open to anti vaxxer sentiment mm-hmm. they went the other direction right which says something i'm not sure but i just wanted to cite that we have seen in putting this article together and talking to folks who've been involved in the r&d relationship between the united states and russia over the last 40 50 years you know there was a certain sadness and wistfulness about what's been a slow and steady decline of that relationship it's not like we've seen a precipitous change in recent years. And what you referenced earlier about the 09 reset, both Judy and I were involved at mm-hmm. different points, and Judy can say more, in that early phase. And that didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. That just stopped. I mean, it was kind of interesting. We had Bill Frist involved. We had Nicola Guasemenga,
2: the deputy mm-hmm. head of the health committee in the Duma.
0: Back to you, Judy, on some of the points that Jeff raised.
2: So a couple of comments here. One is to follow up on the deceleration of the scientific collaboration. It's been in decline, but there's still a good critical mass of work happening, Mm -hmm. being funded by Fogarty and NIH. Certainly a lot of European partners are trying to continue those collaborations. But boy, the Russians are making it hard. The Russian government is making it hard. They're putting increasing restrictions around the types and frequency of contacts that Russian scholars and academics can have with Western partners. It's getting harder to get biological samples into and Mm -hmm. out of the country. There's a lab in UK that now has set up its own center for testing biological samples with a partner in Moscow, but they're also bringing in their own samples that they've already tested to act as sort of a control group and a check on the quality of what's happening in that lab in Moscow. You know, if you want to continue these partnerships in Russia, you have to be willing to put in some investments Mm -hmm. in quality control and efforts to make runarounds around the increasing restrictions that we're seeing from the government.
0: May I add just one thing, Judy, that one of the folks I spoke with at NIH about the reset efforts Mm -hmm made the point that after each one of these sort of high diplomacy events that seemed to give a push, NIH would rally and get its A-team together. And then the Russians who would show up would be party hacks with no credibility in the science community. And that pattern was repeated over and over Mm -hmm. again. And it was seen as a political statement as much. It was seen as a statement of we really don't want our best scientists out there consorting, we want reliable political hacks and mm-hmm. so that undermined the enthusiasm or willingness yeah. on the part of our senior leadership mm-hmm. on the science side. Trevor Burrus
1: Right. Why is this a good use of my time?
0: To waste a lot of time rallying our best and brightest to come to the table.
1: Yeah. I think – I don't remember exactly how many working groups there were under the bilateral commission, but some of them definitely worked better than others and I think there was this real political push from the Obama administration to set these things up. And, actually getting buy-in from the different stakeholders, both in Washington and in Moscow, the mileage varied a lot. It's interesting to hear that the health working group was struggling because of Russian resistance.
2: And the potential in return in these collaborative investments is getting to be more of a question mark. Mm-hmm. When you look at the brain drain from Russia, and you know a lot of Russia's best scientific brainpower isn't in Russia anymore. It's in Silicon so, Valley. Exactly. Yeah, it's a hard sell. And looking particularly within the narrow scope of public health, the bench in Russia isn't deep at mm-hmm. all. And you know most of their best people are working in London. They're working in the United States. They have a handful of sort of token good people who they trot out at every international conference. So it's the same people at all mm-hmm. these international conferences. And the bench is shallow beyond those people. There's not a new young crop of upcoming public health specialists ready to take the reins and advance Russian science in this area.
0: Now, the point you make, Jeff, about traditional values and the Mm -hmm. internal transformation that's been happening under Putin, this has great consequences on disease control if you're talking about HIV or TB or Mm -hmm. other related hepatitis C. Because the most marginal high-risk populations, those populations are ones that through U.S. investments and partnerships, when you had a functioning NGO sector in Russia that was authorized and able and empowered to operate, they were at least given cover to open a relationship and try to get access to those populations. And I want to ask Judy to talk about, I mean, in that period in which there's been the drift towards a higher emphasis on traditional values, it was a collapse of the NGO sector. And the protections or mm-hmm. validation or access to those key populations.
1: Yeah. Well, and I would just add too that that's also a piece of the escalating US-Russia confrontation because one of the things that Russia has done has made it much harder, in fact, almost impossible for Russian NGOs to accept foreign funding now. Right.
0: And we think of it largely as sort of going after IFAS or National mm-hmm. Democratic Institute or right. but it's across Republican the board. Institute. Mm-hmm. But the same thing happened but on the public health side with huge consequences downstream.
2: Absolutely. So we can talk, you know, just about HIV. There used to be hundreds of young, energetic, incredibly skilled people working in civil society on HIV back at the time when they were funded by the Global Fund and USAID and a whole lot of European institutions. Those are external funders that were bringing in not just money, but technical capacity, expertise. Mm -hmm. They are all gone now. And so... Hats off to the hundred or so remaining NGOs that are still fighting that fight in Moscow and in other places around the country. They're doing it with whatever funds they can gather and whatever technical expertise they can amass. But by and large, government policy now, because as Steve said, government is not willing to reach out to marginalized vulnerable populations. In fact, Virtually all their policies mitigate against outreach to those policies. There are incentives in place for those populations to hide, to shield themselves from interaction with the government. And so Russian government funding and Russian government policy is very heavily oriented toward testing and treating HIV. The prevention agenda is virtually non-existent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no country in the world that has tested and treated its way out of an HIV epidemic. You know, You have to do the prevention work. As a part of your multi-pronged right. approach to dealing with the epidemic. And there is no education. There's no communication. There's just very little happening in getting at the vulnerable groups that need to help the Some most. Some
0: of the data that's in our paper I found astonishing on the HIV side of things. And I wanted you to say something more about that because that data shows a trajectory that is very scary if we're thinking ahead Say a bit more, like what is the epidemic, the HIV epidemic, in your estimation, Judy? What's the epidemic likely to look like in three to five years?
2: The official numbers, and there are a couple of different sets of official data, so we don't know for sure, but we think there are about a million cases of HIV, still predominantly an epidemic among injectable drug users, but increasingly also we're seeing the reporting of a cases among the sex partners of those drug users. We have no idea what's going on with men who have sex with men mm-hmm. because of the legal environment Again, surrounding yeah. that population. Where it's likely to go, I think, is at best a stabilization, more likely an increase because of the lack of prevention, outreach, and harm reduction services an intensification of the epidemic among injection drug users and among their sex partners. We're already seeing about 10% of mortality from infectious disease in the country from HIV-AIDS-related causes. That's only going to go up over time. And it's a health system that just doesn't have the capacity to deal with this.
0: Jeff, can I ask you to offer a bit of some thoughts around Crimea and Mm -hmm. Donbass? I mean, within the health world, what happened in Crimea and Donbass was shocking in terms of those who were on substitution therapies, Mm -hmm. those who were receiving other forms of assistance. And there's been a lot of commentary on that. But that was a health security dimension embedded within the bigger crisis.
1: Right. I think there's an issue that we really struggle with, not only in the public health space, but how do you engage populations in these occupied or unrecognized territories? especially when the US government and other Western governments have imposed pretty comprehensive sanctions on people, companies, entities, you know, within these areas. In this particular case, the Russian government also makes it hard. I mean, they're not allowing international health workers or public servants to go into places like Crimea. So they've just kind of become these black holes. But, you know, even in places where it's a little bit easier in terms of Russia's own policy, you know, some of these other unrecognized states and territories, The fact of sanctions and the fact of, you know, trying to isolate these areas as a form of punitive diplomacy, I think actually makes it worse in some ways to deal with the day-to-day concerns that people living in Abkhazia or South Ossetia or... Nagorno-Karabakh or Transnistria or wherever it is um, are actually going through.
0: We had a chance recently to speak with the leadership in Ukraine of the Public Health Alliance, Mm
1: -hmm. which operates
0: in the Donbass areas. And there's been a depopulation, but it's becoming a very aging population. Mm -hmm. But I was surprised at the degree to which there was access into those areas Mm -hmm. by a non-governmental organization. That was...
1: Yeah, you were in government controlled This is government-controlled Donbass there's an act of conflict going on, more or less, but it is under the sovereignty of the Ukrainian government. I think the real problem is in the, the occupied territories, the ones that are controlled by the Russian-backed separatists, where there's very, very little access.
0: So we're getting towards the end of our time here. I want to come back to the bigger question of what's our world going to be like if Russia has moved into a position of increasing inwardness and isolation and barriers that keep it in the global health scheme of things, but in many other dimensions. But here we're talking about in the global health dimensions, keep it separate increasingly. I mean, that seems to be one of the fundamental Mm -hmm. propositions or takeaways that one can see in this analysis that we have just... And,
1: you know, we talk about this a lot in other areas in terms of you know, setting up a, a separate financial architecture, setting up a, a separate internet architecture. But I guess we're seeing it in public health, too. This is part of Russia's attempt to create an alternative, if not global order, then maybe kind of regional order that operates according to a different set of rules. And, and norms. Jeff,
0: what do you think the implications, before we talk to Judy on the implications on the health side, what do you think the implications are long term?
1: How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think this is one of the fundamental challenges that the United States and its partners are going to have in terms of dealing with Russia. Russia doesn't see itself as converging with the West anymore. It doesn't see itself as participating in a Western-led global order. And if it's instead going to be trying to construct a a regional order based on the way things are done within Russia itself, that's going to be very problematic. I don't know that we have the interfaces for dealing with that. And I also think it means that countries and regions surrounding Russia are going to continue to be and maybe in some ways become even more contested in terms of whether they associate with that Russian-led order or they don't.
0: Judy, what do you think the consequences are from your perspective of a Russia that is increasingly outside the norm, outside the chambers of cooperation on scientific, programmatic, despite these things that we talk about in terms of NCDs and TB and modest investments in WHO? The bigger picture is greater inwardness and isolation.
2: Ironically, it's almost a best case scenario if these retroaggressive attitudes and policies in Russia remain relatively isolated, you know, remain within a Russian silo. Mm -hmm. I, I think the broader danger is that this whole package of intolerance, of viewing something like harm reduction as Western permissiveness, if that all goes hand in hand with Russia's export of populism of its export of the disinformation that's intended to lead to a disenchantment with Western institutions, with, you know, a more enlightened scientific way of looking at a whole host of issues. If that starts taking hold in a longer-term basis outside Russia's borders, then that has some pretty serious consequences for the way Russia is able to lean on its friends, its allies, its target countries in Central Asia, you know, it's already leaning on Kazakhstan in a big way on harm reduction. You know, if Russia is able to start turning some of those levers, if it has some channels of influence more broadly, then certainly a lot of progress that's been made, you know, in Russia's backyard and and more broadly across Europe in more enlightened policies toward TB control, toward HIV/AIDS control. There's a lot of progress that can be reversed if that gets me
0: to just the very last item, which is, you know, we conclude in our paper with a proposal that the U.S. should be more engaged in the region that it should make a priority for a variety of reasons to step up its health engagement in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, while not closing off access points mm-hmm. to Russia itself, not deciding to wall ourselves off voluntarily, continue testing what is possible. Jeff, does that make sense to you? And is that consistent mm-hmm. with calls in other spheres?
1: Yeah, no, I think it does. And I think it also rests on the idea that we don't consider these areas to be part of a Russian sphere of influence. I think that's what Moscow is ultimately trying to do is to draw lines in the sand and say, these countries in the former Soviet Union and maybe even outside are where our model is going to predominate. And because we have greater interests here than you do, we get to decide what's best for these countries. And I don't think that that's a premise that we should accept and that we should continue to be engaged. And some spheres be more engaged in these countries on the basis that. It's not Russia's place to tell them, you know, what the appropriate approach is or or what policies they should adopt.
0: Judy, do you think, just the last thought, do you think the time's ripe for such a strategy of engagement,
1: for making this a
0: priority? And what's it going to take in the long term? I mean, looking beyond the Trump administration, what's it going to take to make such a strategy viable and meaningful? I
2: mean, the time is ripe right now. If the United States withdraws from the global health space in this area, if we withdraw from the health security space in this area, then Russia is going to be more than happy to fill that vacuum. It's a relatively low investment, potentially very high payoff across a lot of different areas, you know, not just in health diplomacy, but in the broader political sphere as well. It's an easy road for Russia to take. And what it takes, uh, I think, is a relatively low level, certainly financially, of investment on the part of the United States, Mm -hmm. but just partnering with entities in this part of the world who will be very happy to see us step up our level of engagement. Who
0: specifically do you have in mind?
2: Governments in Central Asia, non-governmental partners in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, places that might not seem like logical political partners, but even someplace like Belarus is mm-hmm. way out ahead of Russia on substitution therapy, harm reduction. You know, there are places that want the science. They want the better health outcomes. And there's a willingness to reach out for assistance and partnership, I think, with anyone who's reaching out a hand.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of our Take is Directed and Russian Roulette podcast, featuring Jeff Mankoff, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the CSIS Russia and Eurasia Program, and Judy Twigg, Professor of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University. We invite you to subscribe so that you never miss our latest episodes. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, visit the CSIS.org
1: Global Health Policy Center program page. And you can subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes or on Google Play or SoundCloud. And you can send us questions or comments to rep at CSIS.org. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.